0: Hello, folks, and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Each week, I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and, of course, improving your athletic performance. This week, my guest is mindset coach Luke Tybersky, a former professional footballer who, after retiring injured, chased ever more extreme adventures to avoid facing up to depression. Eventually... After completing the ultimate triathlon, he was a broken man, suffering with extreme adrenal fatigue alongside very dark holes of depression and more binge eating. This is a compelling conversation and to be quite frank, it's not the first time I've heard an endurance athlete recount an experience like this. Anyway, let's crack on and hear Luke's story. Welcome to the show, Luke Tybersky. How are you, Simon? I'm good, Luke. Uh, it seems like a long time since we last met. Yeah, I'm going to say
1: 2016 at a velodrome in London, if, yeah. uh, if my memory serves me right.
0: Yes, I think we were both speaking at a triathlon show, weren't we, um, in the afternoon? And you were just promoting the film that you were doing or had done or was just about to come out about the ultimate triathlon, which we'll talk about later and we'll reference in the show notes. But I think that was it. So a lot of
1: water under the bridge since then. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I've definitely, um, you know, seen your crew out at different races and obviously we've chatted a a little bit online as well. So we we have had that connection been going on since then as well.
0: Yeah, well, you're looking well. I mean, listeners, you can't see uh, Luke unless I share some video with you, but I'm, Luke's Luke's at his home. I'm at mine. He's uh, he looks well. He looks the picture of health. Well, I feel, I feel fit, strong, and
1: healthy, so I can't complain.
0: But I know it's been a bit of a journey for you with some there's been a few bumps in the road, hasn't there, since uh, we last met. So we'll get onto that later.
1: Yeah, for um, sure, mate. It's yeah, life, life has been a journey, and uh I've I've sh- I've shared my journey on different mediums, which I'm sure we'll touch on as well.
0: Well, let's let's talk about um your journey to that point where we met so you weren't an endurance athlete I remember that that was the thing that surprised me when I first met that you'd come from team sports. Yeah exactly a lot of
1: people who I chat with now and have heard of of the stuff that I've done and what I've achieved in my relatively short endurance sports career sort of a bit surprised when they sort of hear that you know it wasn't up until 2012 that I did my first ever running race. And before that I was a football player, a soccer player. And that's all I ever wanted to do as a kid. Growing up in Australia, um, although football isn't massive there, it was getting bigger and and actually surprises a lot of people in UK. It's it's when I was growing up in the in the 90s, I'm 38 now, it was the most played sport in the country.
0: So well I I I mean, obviously, we've got the soccer rules. In fact, I think as we're talking, the England football team, the Lionesses, are playing the Australian women in the Olympics, Olympics. today. Yeah. So by the time the podcast comes out, we'll know the result of that one. And I, I do remember that um, back in the 80s and 90s, my dad used to do the football pools, you know, where you have to try and predict the scores. And if the games were postponed, uh, you know, because of bad weather, you ended up having to try and do the Australian games. So you ended up with Adelaide city versus Sydney city and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I, I do recall that football is pretty popular in, in, in Australia.
1: Yeah, it was, it was extremely popular, but then at the top level for the professional league, it was, it was pretty dire. Um, but I, I had this dream that I wanted to play professionally and play in Europe and um yeah, I, I left home at 16. We we finished school at 17, 18 in Australia. Like you have to go all the way through. And I left home while I was still at school and to play for a professional club. It was a sort of a family decision to do that. I went and lived live with a, a random family that was in the area of the club and um, started my journey then as a 16-year-old kid still at high school trying to sort of ply my trade. And I had some success in my teenage years and got to, I was about 20. And the top, le- the top league in Australia, what was called the NSL back then, basically said we're going to fold because we just don't have enough money um, to make it sustainable. So they said, right, we're going to completely revamp the top league in Australia and have just eight teams, two teams in the, in each club, sorry, each club, and and that was it. But we're not going to start for another two and a half years because we want to rebuild it from the bottom up. And I'm twenty. Playing at the highest level I can possibly play at in Australia, and now they're telling me that the top league is going to be defunct, and I have to go and play down in the second league that I played for
0: years prior. So I made a decision to to leave Australia. Big call when you're twenty. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful place, Australia. It's a little out of the way, isn't it? And uh, well, um, that was that it... was
1: the biggest thing is moving to the other side of the world. And um, I had some friends who told me that I could go and play in America. I could finish my degree because I was studying exercise science at the time. Um, so I was playing. Soccer on the side um, while I was studying, sort of they worked well together. Um, used my, my class timetable to fit around my training. And I went to the States, finished my degree, played in some of the lower leagues out there. And then I decided it was time to, to move over to the big place and came over to Europe and kicked the ball around a little bit in the UK before I went out to Belgium to play for a little while. So I had a little bit of success, success out in Belgium before coming back to the UK. And um, spent three years in the UK, basically injured and struggling to find a new club. Um, and at the ripe old age of 28, after many injuries, I had three surgeries in 11 months on three different body parts at one
0: stage. Um, I decided to hang up the boots at 28. So a couple of things there. I mean, obviously, uh, you had to go from calling it soccer to football. <laughs> but but in the US, football is NFL. And depending on which state you live in, football or footy is rugby league in uh, New South Wales and Queensland. And it's uh, Aussie rules if you're in Victoria. I mean, I know it's spread out a little bit now and uh, there's franchises in each of the states. But basically, Victoria is Aussie rules football and uh, um, New South Wales and Queensland is uh, rugby league football. And then all of those states play rugby union as well, don't they? So uh, footy footy isn't soccer No, it was it was, and I still
1: today like I, I'm conscious of who I'm speaking to because I've done it ever since I was a little kid. Because growing up, we called it soccer, but then as I got to a higher level, um, in sort of teenage years, we called it football even in our own circles. But then to the general public, we would call it soccer. (laughs) And I went to the states, and we would call it you know I played with people from the from the UK and from Europe, and we would call it football. But then to the general public, would call it soccer. So. In my head, it just does it sort of naturally now that, you know, if I'm talking to someone, I'm in London, like about football, I'd be talking about football. But then if I talk to my
0: parents, I refer to it as soccer. So what position did you play? Because I'm interested, because that may have a bearing on this endurance that you have. Yeah, so
1: I played a defensive midfielder or centre-half. And and my, I think one of the big things that I can see now that carried over into my endurance um, sports world um, and career was one, my work ethic um, that I was um, introduced to by my parents, working class family, you know, always encouraged work hard to achieve your goals just because you work hard doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but if you don't work hard, you definitely won't achieve your goals. So there was that work ethic um, and that I carried that over into every club that I played for, that I was always priding myself on being one of the fittest at the club. So I was running, doing different fitness tests with the wingers and the central midfielders, and here I am, a defensive midfielder or a centre-half, you know, running with them to the end. So that was always something that I sort of prided prided myself on that I was one of the fittest because I knew that that's something that I could – tangibly work on to help improve my my game as a player
0: yeah if you look at the stats for premier league games or some of the european competitions you'll see you can see that the you know certain midfielders cover a lot of ground 10 or 12 thinking the european championships are on recently um calvin phillips was covering 11 or 12 kilo uh, k in a game so that's an awful lot of running and i remember when i was at school i played rugby but when the weather was bad Everybody had to do cross country, and so there was the guys who were the runners who'd occupy the top maybe ten. But then the next, the next lot of places were that the guys who play football and the midfielders, and it's just that running. They, I'd, I'd probably back then most of them weren't training to play there. They just did a lot of running, and um, you know that carried over. And I suppose the the anaerobic nature of football as well, the the sort of the backwards running, the multilateral, um, uh, multi-directional. Um, activity is good for bone bone strength, bone um, density, density yeah. and integrity, tendon integrity. Um, you build different muscles. So there's a lot of, there's good balance. You've got good proprioception. You've probably got good balance as a runner and then you've got the endurance. So whilst it might seem strange, you've actually got a, re- a fairly decent uh, base from which to develop as a, as a pure endurance athlete.
1: Yeah, and from a 14, I would say, I, like it's a very different structure in Australia in terms of sport and, and, and football than it is over here in the UK. But to give you an idea is like at 14, I was playing basically two games on a weekend and training probably four nights a week at different academies, at different clubs, representative clubs, my, my normal club, stuff like that. So, you know, I'm training almost full-time from a 14-year-old kid, not because my parents made me. It was always like, I want to go and play here and play here. My parents was like, no, you can't do it all. So I was like one side was, yeah, like the physical training of it was would definitely help me in my in my late years and my endurance career. But as I mentioned before, it's combining that training basically full-time from a 14-year-old kid alongside of the work ethic that was ingrained in me. So when you combine those two, it's a pretty good sort of kickstart to launch yourself into some sort of endurance uh, career as well.
0: Mm. Now then, going into that endurance thing, I know that the first event you you found was, was not a triathlon. It was a run, wasn't it? And I've done this. I, I, when you talk about this run, I, I have um, some knowledge of this because I've done it twice. So you plumped for probably the toughest foot race on earth. I think that's how they brand it, is the Marathon Disable.
1: Yeah, that was my my first ever my first ever running race, and people go, "Oh, your first ever ultra," and I'm like, "No, no." And it's actually only recently that my mum uh, actually said that wasn't your first ever running race, and I was thinking, "What are you talking about?" In my hometown in Australia, three and a half hours northwest of Sydney, called Bathurst. A little shout out to Bathurst.
0: Oh, weather whether with the motor racing from Bathurst. Exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, they have a like a, a fun run and it's a 7k 7k fun run and i did that once or twice as a as a kid like 12 13 year old kid and i just did it cuz i had a couple of mates that did it so if you if you take one or two fun runs of a 7k when i was like 12 or 13 um off the list my first ever running race was the Marathon de Sables, running six marathons in seven days through the miller Sahara Desert, carrying everything you need on your backpack. And I did that six months after I retired from from football because I was lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and I was just trying to figure out where do I go from here.
0: Yeah, the thing that I loved about the MDS, I mean, I'm not a runner, And actually, I didn't spend a lot of time running. Once I was dealing with the blisters and carrying a 10-kilo backpack and you know, just day after day, it turned into just a huge hike for me. And I I would say that's what it is for 90% of the field. I know you were up a little closer to the front to start with. And so um, a lot of those guys are running. But you're not really running, are you? You're just trotting and walking a bit, trotting, almost shuffling uh, a bit. But that's actually most people that enter can probably finish the MDS. I mean, in order to not finish, if you keep moving, you've got to be slower than those camels. And those those camels are moving pretty slow, aren't they? Because I've <laughs> been I've been at the back with the camels walking behind me and, man, they walk slowly.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things like the Discovery Channel deemed it up because they covered it a few years and made a few sort of films about it and they dubbed it the toughest foot race on earth. Like, it's as tough as you want to make it. Like it could be the toughest foot race on earth if you're trying to race it and it's a hot year, right, and you maybe don't get your nutrition right because you've never done a mm. self-supported race before um, and you make a few mistakes. But for the majority of the pack, I'll be, I'll be honest, and, you know, I, I've done it. It's my first race. I should be bigging it up, right? But I don't think it's anywhere near the toughest foot race on earth because those time cutoffs are so long. And as you said, if you, if you keep moving, then you'll make it. Like mm. you get given a tent and you basically have to make your own group of tent mates, as you know. So there was eight when we did it in a tent. And there was a couple of military guys in there. And this one guy, his name's Guy, he was probably in his mid-50s. He didn't run one step. He walked the whole race and like he marched it because he's been in the military his whole life and like he finished his medal looked just the same as mine. Mm. And it was just a case of like, it was just a constant march. And the thing that people got to remember is you think, oh, well, I could do it then. It's not so much that, okay, yes, you can march and you can walk and you can finish it, but then your recovery time is shorter. Mm-hmm. You know? So with someone who runs it, walks it, runs it, walks it, and say finishes a day in six hours compared to someone that finishes it in 10 or 12 hours that means you've got less time to recover for the next thing so it's
0: a balance it's a balance to try and get it right and to me the people who don't finish don't finish um because they can't uh, they're not fit enough aerobically you know I have a lot of people who I've spoken to when when have know that I've done this and said oh, I'd love to do that but I don't think I'm fit enough you are but the reasons that people don't finish are, blisters and problems with the feet i mean I, I saw people in doc trotters you know the little the french medics that are there and they've got their foot looked like a piece of raw meat they've got half the skin missing you know they've just got a blister that's just joined another blister that's joined another blister and doc trotters are vicious aren't they they don't just puncture the blister and put a bit of iodine in it they just cut the skin off and you've got this expanse of raw flesh that's open to the elements um with some of that purple stuff that they paint on it mercurochrome um, there were people that uh, um, because of hygiene or whatever they got stomach problems and they just hadn't eaten anything for two days and they were just weak and and then they needed there was the people who got dehydrated and needed an IV and they got withdrawn medically um, we met one guy, um, there was one bit one year when we had to go on this mountain pass and this guy got it into his head that it was really exposed and you know there was a big drop off, it was like one of those um, ridges that you get up in sky where you've got uh jagged rocks on one side and a huge drop off on the other and and if you slip you're dead and he got it into his head that he couldn't do this and so he was saying yeah I'm just going to pull out tonight and we're like man you can do this we'll we'll guide you across come on we'll go across together now and he pulled out and actually the ridge was nowhere near as bad as he had made out and if you'd fallen you'd have mostly ended up on sand dunes anyway so it would have been a soft landing you'd have rolled a bit so um but it's a great adventure, isn't it? And and actually, I, and I, the things I enjoyed about the MDS were being with my tent mates. Yeah, that that was just one hell of a blast. And um, the logistics, and particularly, and this is something I'd like to get onto because it involves your journey through sports nutrition as well. Is deciding what you're going to eat and what you're going to consume. Yeah, that was that was a tricky one.
1: So I. <laughs> I'll give you a quick, very quick snapshot of my MDS experience and, and what I was trying to get out of it. I, I naively thought coming from a professional football background with six months to train, it's like, yeah, right. You know, it's deemed that the elite top 50, that's like finishing on the podium for most races, right? It's the elite top 50. Cause you start three hours later on the long day. And, and that's like, that's just, mm-hmm. that's what it was called back then when I did it in 2012. So I was like, right up. My aim is the top 50. And I think there was like, Near a 1,000 people did it that year. So I went out and I was racing it. Yeah, not racing anyone else, but racing myself. And I knew that if I could race at a certain pace, I would finish based on previous years. And the first day I was, uh, I think, 22nd or 24th, and then 34th the next day. And I went in with an ITB issue because... Unsurprising to anyone really thinking about this is I went from a footballer to an in, an endurance runner, ultra runner in six months, and I tried to squeeze too much training in. And as we know, one of the over overuse injuries that we can get is an inflamed ITB when we're, when we're running or even cycling too much um, or increasing the intensity too much in a shorter period of time. So basically I, I had that. I had an injection um, to just sort of try and, get me through the week i lasted a day and a half before my knee blew up and then as you talked about the blisters i degloved a couple of my toes you know there's there's still when the mds comes around to sign up and there's like generic photos of toes and stuff i still see photos of my toes because doc trotters as you said took photos of my toes they were that bad and the reason being was my i didn't realize how much my feet would sweat in the heat Mm. and then obviously when you feet get your your skin gets wet it basically just peels off mm-hmm. so i wear Yamachu toe socks now and and i you know had no dramas um since so i went in there to race it i you know i was still in the top 50 after three days so i started at you know 12 30 in the middle of the of the day in the, in the long long day it was 50 degrees whatever it was and I had stomach issues where I had to go and find like this little tumbleweed bush to to drop the pants behind as the rest of the uh, rest of the um um the the races went by and I also had intravenous drip on the long day um because I came into one of the aid stations because I started right at the back. I was like one of the last guys and they basically said, if you don't have intravenous drip, we're not letting you go past because I was out of it and I had a drip, I was in there for three hours, I got my time penalty. Um, and I took off and finished the rest of the long day. So I got my money's worth in the MDS. But because I was racing it, it's all about making your pack light, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I took, I took, and this is probably a good segue to, to move into sort of some of the experiments I've done with my sports nutrition um, journey as well, is I took an average of 2,200 calories a day to the MDS, not while I'm running or not after, Total, 2,200 calories a day average for the seven days.
0: Yeah, right. Because when you go before, you're out there for a couple of days in the desert and they bust you out from waza and then they, they dump you there and you go and find your tent and then you've got all this sort of hanging around. They feed you up until that time and you're faffing around with your kit and then you have to go and get everything checked. You've got to make sure you've got those, uh, you know, your venom pump and this and that and the other, your flare and, and then they weigh your food. I'd worked out that if there's four kilo, if there's four grams per, if there's four calories per gram, and you need two thousand calories a day, that's basically half a kilo, isn't it? So, you know, and you need that amount of food for seven days, so that's three and a half kilos of food. So I'm thinking, what's the maximum bung? And I went, uh, probably something we're going to talk about. I thought, I wonder if I could just get avocado oil or olive oil and survive on survive on, you know, um, really good clean fat. Um, and then in the end, I prompted, I, I um, chose pot noodles, not the healthiest food, but it's not about health out there. It's, it's about survival and you can crush them up and they're light, but they're, they're highly calorific and uh, yeah, but still I didn't want the energy gels and um, the energy bars.
1: So prior to the MDS, I was brought up on the stereotypical mm. sports nutrition um, ways but with with the carbohydrates and obviously the the um the sports drinks were getting bigger as well and then the gels and stuff like this so i knew no different like i had a few friends that were endurance athletes some iron man some guys who have qualified for kona in australia um and some marathon runners and they were just like telling me yeah like you have a gel every half an hour blah 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 mm-hmm. all the stuff that you would read in sort of like a gossie may running magazine or whatever so for the MDS, I knew no different. Although I, you know, had an exercise science degree and fascination with, with nutrition as well, as I had since I was like 14-year-old kid, I didn't know anything different apart from what all these glossy magazines were telling me. And it just sort of made sense with what I knew from my own education and also as a as a as a soccer player, as a footballer. So I went into the MDS with a very sort of stereotypical, you know, two gels, an energy bar. A recovery powder at the end of it, and then I had a um, dehydrated meal for breakfast and dinner, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I literally, as I said, averaged out to two thousand two hundred calories a day. Now I know my body needs more than that just to function. So I had different tests as a footballer. So I'm like, okay, I'm I'm just going to have to deal with losing weight every day, and because I'm running a marathon every day, and it was when I come back when I finished the MDS, and I sort of reflected on my time there. And someone said, Well, how did you survive running all those marathons with only eating 2,200 calories mm. a day? And I'm like, That's a great question. How did I survive? If, you know, the, the sports nutrition companies say you need to have, hmm. you know, I don't even know what they say these days 60, no, grams, of 60 carbohydrates grams an hour, yeah. yeah, an hour or whatever. That means you've got to have two gels and this and that. If I didn't do that, and for the first three days, I was still in the top 50 and I was still running relatively you know, well, although my body was deteriorating. And I still finished it because now I was running longer because I was running slower and I still had the same amount of food. I just can't just go to a shop. I'm like, well, how was I able to keep moving? How was I able to finish when I'm only giving my body 2,200 calories a day? And I'm like, there's got to be more to this. So then it was there when I came back, I was like, there's got to be something else going on here. I need to dive in and try and figure out how I was in my body when i was only having such a min- minimal amount of calories and it was mainly carbohydrates
0: so what what, what what was your conclusion when you looked at that how did you fuel it i, I mean i know i think i know where you're going to with this right. and it's it follows my own experiments with the, uh, you know which of the macronutrients you really need to be concentrating on
1: yeah so i started to find people online so we're talking 2013 right social media wasn't really massive wasn't the as much information out there as what it would be now so 2013 end of 2012 as well i started to see that people were feeling with fat and started to understand because i'd never been taught this never never seen this before mm-hmm. how the body basically uses fat as fuel to be to make to be really simplistic and at lower intensities Right, so we can, and it's like, well, obviously, that's what happened because I would burn the carbohydrates like a match, boom, gone. But I still was running for like three or four hours. So, what was I, you know, being fueled on? So I started to learn that um, and understand that, and it made sense because I understood um, physiology, um, which helped, and then I started to experiment. And I went down different rabbit holes. I, you know, went around with like the ketogenic diets. I went full hardcore. Got blood tests and urine tests and all this sort of stuff, and be, went into um, did the ketogenic diet for like six months. Train hard, come off it for like three or four months. ate a bit more carbohydrates. Went back and forth to experiment to see what works for me, because it was all about what would work for me. I'm not trying to create a you know a course on it or anything like that. So that sort of was my initial experimentation, and also um, fasting with training. Um, playing around with that to be a little bit more, you know, quote unquote, fat adapted. And I I did some pretty hardcore experiments with fasted sessions, I must admit.
0: It's quite an interesting discussion this because um, to your point about sports nutrition companies, a lot of the research is done on people at around 80% of effort or going to exhaustion. If you if you're doing a long distance race, you're doing a marathon, and you're pushing the boundary, and you and you're in that glycogen burning zone, you know you're right on the edge. You probably do need to fuel it, but for something like the MDS, where it's just a steady plod, if you like, at a low intensity, um, your body's most likely going to be burning fats all the way through that. So I had the same thoughts about, you know, particularly when I did it second time, because the first time I'd, I'd done exactly that, I like got all these energy bars, but then these weigh about 20 kilos. And so if I carry 20 kilos, I'm going to be, A, that's going to be really hard to move. And B, I'm going to be burning more calories. So, you know, that means I'm going to need more food. So the heavier you pack, the more food you need, the more food you've got to carry, the heavier you pack. And uh, So that was when I started doing the... Um, by 2015, when I did the second time, I'd got, I was on the fat adapted experiments as well, probably like you were, and thinking, can I can I do more fat stuff? Can I take beef jerky and do protein and fat? Um, I I'd, I'd had those same discussions in my head about, you know, who are they really aiming this research at? Are they really aiming it at people doing multi-day, you know, um, endurance at low levels, and. I've, I've gone through the same thing. I haven't done the, I haven't done the extreme keto, but I've done faster training. You know, I've got up in the morning and ridden for five and a half hours over hilly terrain with nothing but, um, a coffee and some water. Um, I've, I've got on to now I'm, I'm much more nuanced about it. And I, I like your phrase, finding what works for you. This this, I I don't know if you're familiar with Tommy Wood. Um, but, but that's the phrase that Tommy says all the time as a doctor, if you come to me and tell me this is working great, then why would I argue with that? Um, and so now I'm, I'm much lower carb than I used to be because again, I was, I was, um, influenced by the same media that you were, you know, in your early triathlon journey, more carbs, more carbs. And I'm now lower carb, more nuanced carbs, tubers, sweet potatoes, you know, root vegetables, no white stuff, um, occasional sourdough bread, much more fat, cold, cold water fish. Um, and I'm sort of going down the carnivore experiment as well. You know, the, the nose to tail type stuff. But um, I found something that works for me. And, and I get, but but I don't know about you. Do you get a lot of pushback from people that go, yeah, but that's ridiculous, Luke. You know, the evidence says this. Um, and they still want to argue about it, even though you found something that works for you.
1: Yeah, so Normally, if I get pushback, I sort of try and figure out who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to like a a lay person who is just reading glossy magazines, it's a case of is this a battle that I really want to mm-hmm. you know go down with? But also, I do look at it if they're if they're a little bit open minded because you know if you're someone's got tunnel vision, there's, there's no point. But you also ask them like I I ask people to say take take a step back. Where did the research come from? Okay, from a lab. Okay, do you think that sports nutrition companies or even scientists are going to pull in the everyday Joe Blow who just wants to run a marathon a couple of times a year or whatever and test them? No, they're testing elite athletes, right? So then, and this is, this is marketing 101 across every industry, not just sports nutrition. They will get some scientific studies. They'll get some research done or, or, or whatever and they'll go, okay, we know at an elite athlete that they will, for their peak performance, let's say for a 5K runner, right, that they will burn, or a marathon runner, elite marathon runner, let's, let's even put in that example, they will burn X amount of carbohydrates so they need to replace them, right, because they're burning carbs because they're basically going flat out for two hours. You sp- let's be honest, the elite guys. Okay, so as a sports nutrition company, we have put this runner in a lab. We've done all the, the relevant testing and we figured out that for the runner to be at their best, they burn this amount of carbohydrates, so they have to replace them. And the best way to do that is with like these simple sugars or with maltodextrin or all these sort of things because it's easier on the gut because you've got the GIS aspect as well. And you would drink it because it's easier because you don't have any blood in your gut when you're running, blah, 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 all this stuff. So the sports nutrition companies go, okay, great. We've got that data for the elite athletes, boom. But then they take a, a, a slither of that evidence that they've found and it's scientifically proven, right? Because it's part of the study And then they put into their marketing and push it out to the masses, the masses that, as you said, they're not running a a 205 or a 2010 or a 202 marathon, you know, and they're not running at the level of the intensity that these elite people are. So it's it's miscued. So I sort of try and tell people, like, take a step back and look Mm -hmm. at it. And if you're going to run a a five- or six-hour race and you've got to have two gels an hour, Okay, regardless of what the science says, think about that logically. Are you going to be able to do that? And what sort of distress is that going to cause your gut? So when you sort of say that to people yeah. and they go, and a lot of them go, well, yeah, like how are you supposed to do that if you are going to run an ultra and you are going to go for five hours and I'm supposed to have 10 gels or eight gels in five hours? How would that, well, there's no way I could eat that. And I was like, Okay. So now can you see that maybe what the science is telling us that the, that's that been marketed to us maybe is a little bit blurry and most of them will sort of go, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. There has to be a different way or, or what is the actual science?
0: I did a podcast recently with a uh, Dina Griffin nutritionist and we talked about this aspect and, you know, I get people saying to me, well, I like to have a cheese and pickle sandwich. It seems to work for me. She was very good at pointing out that, to your point, if you are at the pointy end of the race and you're doing an Ironman um, or equivalent event and you are aiming for a 9 or 10-hour performance, then you probably are going to be operating at that level where you need to support that with um, carbohydrate. And the faster you go, the more carbohydrates you need. All right? If you're at the point where you're um, – Going to be finishing in thirteen or fourteen hours. The intensity is probably lower. You can probably exist on more fat, and and your guts not under so much stress. So you could probably digest a cheese and pickle sandwich or a pork pie if that's what you choose. I mean, look, Dean Karnazes, you know, talks about the pizza that he gets delivered that he rolls up into a burrito and chews while he's jogging along doing his two hundred kilometer run. He's not sprinting for two hundred kilometers. He's going at a steady pace, and he just needs food. And you know. No man can continue to, to to consume those gels without getting bored of them. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Where we just we just want a packet of salt and vinegar crisps.
1: Yeah, you, as as I always tell people, stop and take it, take a step back, and put it into context. What you're asking of yourself, you know, what is your event?
0: Hmm.
1: How long is the intensity? And also, what what does work for you? Okay, yeah, like a, a cheese and pickle sandwich might work. And it's a case of if you're happy with the results that gives you, then you know, knock yourself out. Like if if you want to then run that same event or a similar event where you're where you're moving for a similar amount of time at a similar intensity and you want to go faster, then maybe we need to change that cheese and pickle sandwich because you increase the intensity and and the length, then it's maybe not going to work, but it's, you got to take a step back and look at it. Like what are you trying to achieve during that event and put it into context as to what are you eating and, and, um, and how are you actually running or doing a triathlon in that event as well? So a lot of people just sort of take the research and the, and the science as a blanket statement and go, well, that works for everything rather than going, okay, like let's use a bit of common sense here. But as we know, like people don't like to think for themselves. They just want to be told, do this and carry on.
0: All right, let's move on. Uh, so you've you've come back from this extreme endurance event. I guess you're bitten by the bug. Um, you haven't, do it, you haven't done any triathlons to this point, although we did talk about you've done the ultimate triathlon, but that wasn't your first, was it? You were, having, having decided that you were going to do the world's toughest foot race, um, you then took up another extreme challenge, didn't you? Your first triathlon wasn't uh, wasn't the local Hadfield sprint.
1: <laughs> no. So I I came back from the MDS, and as I said, like I, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I decided that I was going to be this endurance adventurer I called myself back in mm-hmm. the day and basically like I didn't make really any money from 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 football so it's not like I had a massive bank account with you know seven figures in it or whatever it's just I decided that I was going to do these big adventures all around the world write books about them have documentaries made about them speak about them have magazine articles done uh, written up about them and stuff like that and and that was, that was sort of my business model, for lack of a better term, and, uh, and coach people with I've always done, even ever since I was, I think, 19 or 20 and started my, my exercise science degree. I've always worked with people from a personal training perspective, from a performance perspective, runners and, and adventurers and stuff like that. And I've just always continued to do that over the last 20 years. So here I am, going to be this big endurance adventurer. I came up with this crazy challenge called the Ultimate Triathlon, which we'll get on in a second. So it's 2014, I'm, I'm sitting in my lounge room and I was like, right, I should do a triathlon the year before the mm. ultimate triathlon. I, I should dive into this swim, bike, run stuff. I've got As I said, I've got friends who are Ironmen and, um, and have done triathlons and I've supported them. And, and I, at this stage, all I'd done was, uh, was running and, and cycling and swimming, but individually. I'd never put them together. So I thought, well, I know I could do an Ironman. And just, you know, not thinking about time, but just to get around the course. I know I could do that based on the running I'd done, the individual cycling events I'd done, different sportives and the open water swimming I'd done. So I thought, I'm not interested in going fast and see how fast I can go. So I'm not going to do an Ironman. So I Googled literally the world's toughest triathlon. And on the First page. What caught my eye was the name of this event, and it's in North Wales, and it's called the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon. I'm
0: familiar with that one. Yep, yeah, I've not done it, but I'm familiar with it. And I just thought <laughs> I have to do this race
1: just because it's got the coolest name. And uh, I I signed up, and I had you know, about six months to to prepare for it, and uh, it was in in September. And I went up to Snowdon with a with a couple of friends of mine and tackled the the double double Ironman distance event
0: yeah I mean Snowden's a challenging place at the best of times isn't it you know I mean um but in September the the weather can be a lottery you could have a an Indian summer and have some nice temperatures but equally you could have storms and low cloud and uh you've got to swim in a cold lake as well haven't you is it like Padan Padaran that you swim yeah in? Yeah, yeah yeah we swim there at, at yeah. Lemberus
1: um yeah I this surprises people, but when I say to them the Double Brutal Triathlon was one of the funnest, if not the funnest, in the in the purest sense of the word, event that I've done. I had a great weekend, and, I like, I didn't win or I didn't finish an amazing time or whatever. I just got around it. Like, I raced within myself because I'd never done a swim, bike, run, and, yeah, you know, this is, it's not really a swim bike run, like from a triathlon perspective, it's more of a weekend adventure. It took me 35 hours nonstop with no sleep. <laughs> and I didn't try and race. I just sort of raced to feel. I felt good. I kept going, ticked along. And the first day of the Saturday, we started at six. I had a great swim. I didn't want to get out. Like it was cold, but I just, I just got into this, this flow state and I just, I didn't want to get out. It was like the last lap. And I thought I could do another one or two of these and then we got out onto the bike and it was eight laps of this of this route and i think it was a 235 mile bike ride or something like that with four or 5000 meters of climbing something ridiculous and it just rained all of the rest of the saturday it rained it wasn't torrential it wasn't windy it just rained and you- it was just do you concert. have to
0: do you have to cycle up Penny Pass, not from Lamberis, but to the top of to the to the youth hostel from Beth Geller, and then you get up to Capel don't you? And so that's a really long climb. Yeah, but then, and then you when come you get the other Penny side, there's Pass, a big there's yeah. a big descent, isn't there? And that's if if you're riding down Penny Pass, that's a challenging descent. And so do you ride into Lamberis then?
1: Yeah, so you ride yeah. ride down Penny Pass into Lamberis. but what we were told at the briefing is don't just sort of Get like relax and fly down the back end of Penny Pass because a lot of sheep Mm. will come and lay on the road because the road's warmer than it is anywhere. And when they said that, I'm thinking, these Welsh people are weird. Like what do you mean sheep aren't going to be lying on the road? And, you know, it is a bit windy and you can't just sort of go full throttle. But, yeah, it was the end of the day. The sun was starting to set. It was getting cooler and I came around and here was two sheep laying down on the side of the road and I had to swerve to go around. Them. And i tell you what, for the next three or four times I came down that pass, you know, my hands were on the brake and I was ready just in case something was there. So it wasn't just sort of a, an easy descent. It was definitely you had to, you know, keep your concentration levels up.
0: Well, I can imagine coming down there in the middle of the night um, when you've been on the go for, x number of hours you're starting to see things that aren't really there you know you see a shadow and you think it's a sheep you see a sheep and you think it's a shadow um it's a bit wet you know that's challenges beyond just being physically fit enough to get through the race yeah and we, we
1: know fatigue inhibits cognitive function you know um or makes it like slower and, and more difficult to comprehend things and yeah like there were some times where i took a little few corners a little bit wider and think whoa Lucky, lucky I didn't sort of hit the side of the road there. And you know, I cycled from I think it took me three hours to do the swim, just under three hours. And I spent way too long in transition. My first triathlon, right? And I'm not, you know, spending spending like really fast, rapid um transitions. I'm having some food, I'm having a laugh, I'm talking to my three friends that were crewing me. They basically said, shut up and get out, you know, mm-hmm. get on the bike. So I was on the bike at, you know, probably just before 10. And I think I finished. At three in the morning mm. um, and cycled nonstop. There was no rest. There was no seven minute naps. There was no nothing. It just, there was eight laps and just come back to the start point and get some food, chat with my crew. Off I go again. And for the final lap, I was getting pretty, pretty tired. And uh, one of my crew, the other two were sleeping. He came and drove behind me for the entire final lap. And there was one stage he pulled up beside me and said, uh, should we just have like a two-minute break? Because I obviously started to fall asleep on the bike, and going up this one hill, I was like cycling sideways across the road. And I remember it was—he um, just played. I can't remember what song it was, but a U2 song, and just had it blared in the in the car. And we literally sat there for half the song, and then I was awake, and I got on and finished the bike. And yeah, you know, transition at two thirty or three o'clock in the morning. To then know the next part of the of the race is a double marathon, and at, to start it off, you've got to summit Mount Snowdon is uh, slightly daunting, I must admit.
0: Yeah, and again, um, going up Snowdon's not bad, is it? You're going slowly. It's always a lot easier to traverse those tricky little ridges and paths. I always find it's much harder when you're coming down, um, and and of course your legs are tired by then. So if you've got a sore knee. Um, or a sore hip every step is painful
1: yeah so they make it mandatory to have someone go up snowden with you because um, obviously it's in the middle of the night you just hide off the bike and my my very good friend she got me lost how how she did it i have no idea she just missed the turn and we, and we went up one of the easiest paths the Lambereth path. pass it's one of the longest one and, and easiest one to follow and but you know it's three o'clock in the morning we're on head torches Neither of us had been up there before, and they just like, follow the main path, follow the main path, and we're we're sort of ticking along. I'm half asleep, no idea who I am and at this stage, and I could see a couple of head torches getting further and further away from us. I'm like, Hannah, is, are we going the right way? She's like, yeah, yeah, the main path on the main path. I'm like, yeah, this looks like the main path, but I can't, I'm trying to sort of comprehend how we would swing back around and go up where these head torches are. Anyway, we kept going for another mile or so. I, said, I think we're in someone's driveway. No, 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 this is the right way. Literally 30 seconds later, we came to a, a house, someone's front door. And she went, yeah, we've gone the wrong way. So I had to double back a couple of miles and we found the main road. And we, we trekked up it. We ran a little bit after I sort of found my, le- my running legs with, uh, you know, all the triathletes out there will know that, you know, the first mile, 500 meters or whatever it is, that it is that works for you is you've got those bike legs. Well, I had mine for, you know, about half an hour, 45 minutes before I felt somewhat normal for lack of a better term. And we got to the top and the Sunday was beautiful. Not a cloud in the sky, sunny. We summited um, on sunrise. It was fantastic. Ah. And then we just sort of, we ran, walked down Snowden. As you said, I like, took it easy because I still had plenty of miles to run and, and we finished the, the summit. And then we had eight laps literally running around the lake that I swam in. And one side was hilly and the other side was flat. So it was a nice mix.
0: Yeah. Not my cup of tea. Too far. Too far for me. 35
1: we- hours, nonstop, no sleep. It's still the the longest in terms of time that I've gone non-stop. Um, and it's 35 hours, that's a long time. You stop and think about it.
0: Yeah. I, I was crewing for some people doing the Ultraman, which was just on the other side of the hill there in Capulcuring and um, Betsy Coed. Um, but we came over Penny Pass and down. And, uh, later on that day, we ended up in Lamberis and they were at the Brutals on at the same time. So there was a little bit of overlap and we went to watch some of the last finishes coming in on the Brutal. And, I mean, <laughs> it looked like it had been brutal for them. Um, But that was just a warm up for you. Tell us about the Ultimate Triathlon. We've mentioned it a few times. I know that um, you'd be more, you'd be more interested in people watching the whole video. So tell us, just tell us some of the headlines about it. Tell us how you, how you got started on designing your own triathlon. I'm interested in the crossing from Morocco to Spain. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested in some of the little things that have happened to you while you were doing that event.
1: Yeah, it was, as I said, I was looking to create a career out of doing these big crazy challenges and I thought, I'm not a well-known person, no one really knows who I am, so I've got to do something big to sort of put me on the map, so to speak. So I literally stared at a at a world map with nothing on my mind except for adventure. And at this point, 2012, uh, was actually just before the MDS, um, you know, I... I, I could swim, I'm an Australian, we learn how to swim as as kids. But had I ever swam, you know, like competitively or done a squad, never in my life. Uh, I'd ridden, ridden mountain bikes and stuff as a kid, but I'd never owned a road bike. And I just signed up to my first ultra marathon. So, you know, to come up with a triathlon, it's not like that's something that i've already done in the past so i literally stared at this world map and i saw and i laugh when i say this every time i saw this little gap between spain and and morocco and i thought the the gibraltar strait and i thought i wonder if i could swim that Uh. and i was like oh yeah that doesn't look too big and then i thought okay i went from morocco swam to spain I could cycle along the, the southeast coast of Spain, along the Mediterranean. Like that would be awesome. That would be great scenery. Fantastic. I saw so, here's a triathlon. Where's the next country? Spain, uh sorry, France. Okay, can I run run along the south of France? Like everyone knows the south of France is beautiful, right? It says, so, Oh, yeah, run to the next country. What's the next country? And it's like, well, there's Monaco, you know, <laughs> in the way there, Morocco <laughs> to Monaco the swim is little on the map and then then the length of spain is a bit longer and then the south of france is shorter to monaco and i thought well that sort of looks like the the different size of a triathlon i'm going to do that and then i started to research can you swim the strait of gibraltar yes it's 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 one of the big open water swims that that open water swimmers do. And it's well, it's well known. And so, like, okay, I can do that. And I looked at the distance of the South of Spain and people cycle there. And it's like, okay, I can do that running along the South of France. That's cool. Put it together. 2000 kilometers was pretty much what it was. And then it was a case of, okay, how many days am I going to do it in? And I was on a bit of a personal journey at this, at this stage. And I was also wanted to do something quite extreme and I kept coming back with 12 days and I asked a few friends and no one thought I could do it in 12 days. And that like stupidly spurred me on even more. And I was like, right, 12 days it is 2000 kilometers, 12 days. I'm going to swim one day and then cycle a bit of the neck of that same day. So bike, a swim bike from one day, four days of cycling. And then what have you got less? Seven days. Yeah. of running. And mm. that was that was going to be it. And I gave myself was it yeah like four and a half years, five years to prepare for it. And that was the ultimate triathlon that I went out to to do in 2015.
0: Swimming from Morocco to Spain. Now I, I know some people who've done some of the, the you know like the Seven Channels you talk about. And That's one of them, isn't it? Is the Gibraltar Straits. And uh, generally, you go from Spain to Morocco. So um, how did how did you? Uh, and it's a bit like doing the channel swim, isn't it? Most, most of them start in Britain and go to France. Very difficult to go from France to Britain. So how, how did you manage to find somebody who let you go from Morocco to Spain? Well, the
1: organization that does it, there's only one organization. So I talked to them and I talked to this guy, Raphael, for two years. And he said, it's more difficult, but it can be done. People do two ways. And a good friend of mine has the record for doing the two-way, Adam Walker. Mm. and he's done the two-way, and I talked to him, and he's like, yeah, it's more difficult, Um, but, you know, if you prepare for it, then you'll be okay. So the guys from the the organization just said it will be more difficult, it will be more difficult. Okay, okay. So I sort of trained for that, and they said, yeah, it's going to be, you know, around, around 20 kilometers, you know, that. And I was like, okay. And I don't want to spoil too much, but I got to Tarifa, south of Spain where I was going to start in my swim window open. I had a week for depending on weather and and that week basically got chewed up with some bad rain for like the second last day we actually swam, which I was getting a bit uh, twitchy thinking, is this going to happen? We've got this window. and um, But, uh, yeah, I, I got a bit of a setback and was told that it was not only more difficult but it's going to be a lot longer because of where you have to start and, um, I actually made the decision to swim from Spain to Morocco. So I actually did the normal swim. Um, it's revealed a little bit more in the documentary. It goes into a bit more detail and also in my book, chasing extreme, I'm going even more detail, but yeah, like 24 hours before I started, I basically flipped it. And, um, but yeah, so I actually did swim from Spain to Morocco, which was I was talking to my mum the other day about it just randomly. I saw an old photo from it and sent it to her. And we both said, we still sometimes stop and think that I swam from Spain to Morocco across you know between continents. And it still blows my mind that I did that. It's, it's mm. one of the, like one of the proudest achievements I've done actually. I think.
0: Mm. Let me ask you a question and, and tell me to shut up and that uh, you move on. If you, if you think I'm digging a bit too deep here, um, it seems like you are inexorably drawn towards things that are just more and more extreme. And as a coach, I, I come across a lot of people like this. Um, and, and I often wonder what's driving this, you know, why, why are you doing all this stuff to yourself? You've got so much on in your life and you, it looks like you're just constantly trying to damage yourself. Anybody looking, anybody from outside might be looking in, if they saw somebody cutting their arm with a knife. They'd ask for medical help. And yet triathletes are often self-harming in some way. That might sound extreme for triathletes that listen and say, I'm not self-harming, but actually at some point we do stuff that takes us beyond the bounds of sensibility and it is self-harm. So um I'd like to ask you that question, Lucas. What what was driving you?
1: Yeah, so as as I mentioned before, I was on a bit of a journey in life and and in my book, I dive right into what I was going through, but I was battling with depression. I was battling with my mental health. I was battling with um, loss of identity. So I wasn't a footballer anymore. Yes, I had this idea of being an endurance adventurer and all these types of things. And that made people sort of look the other way because I had a plan and and I had a business model, so to speak, of how I was going to make it work. And I used to just tell people that, you know, how I'm going to move forward and how I'm going to get sponsors and how I'm going to get media coverage is doing these extreme challenges. And when you start with the MDS, after you do that, people then already sort of the ceiling isn't there anymore. It's like, well, you know, you can, you're, that was your first crazy challenge and you can do anything. So it was almost like people let me off the hook because I went in so big and bold with the MDS. Um, but like at the time, I didn't speak about my mental health with anyone. I went. It took me about three years before I went to a therapist. Um, in total, I was I, I suffered pretty much in silence for about seven years without opening up to the general public or people outside of my family. Um, yeah, and and a couple of friends. So it was that loss of identity. Um, I was confused with life. I was battling with depression, pretty bad. I was battling with binge eating insomnia and twice I stood on bridges not wanting to live anymore so it was a really dark time for me and that's what was driving me it was this whole I feel alive when I'm doing the training when I'm doing these big challenges and you hit the nail on the head like I've mentioned this in podcasts before and interviews I've done before is like I was addicted to endurance sports and I was so addicted to the, the, not the pain, but how it made me feel. And it was a form of self-harm because fast forward to 2016, I had 18 months where I did no physical activity because 2011 up to 2015, doing loads of big, crazy challenges, my body shut down after the ultimate triathlon. And anyone who watches a documentary will see what it looks like for the physical side of a body to literally be shutting down. Like the mental side, that's my biggest strength, you know, my mind, and I train it every day. And I, I showed that the mind can be stronger than the body, mm. you know. So my body was breaking down, but my mind's like not yelling at it. It's like, it's all good. Just keep going, keep going. But my body's like breaking and literally just trying to stop however it can.
0: Uh, I, I want to pick up on that in a second, Luke. I just can we just dial back to mental health because there's been a lot of talk about mental health, and particularly for males, and for t- particularly for males, of, you know, middle age for me, maybe not quite middle age for you, but still, um, we do these extreme sports. People think we're invincible. We sometimes convince ourselves that we're invincible. Um, talking about it and two people is seen as a sign of weakness, and of course, if if we demonstrate that weakness, then that punctures that balloon of invincibility we have. And yet, if we don't talk about it, then things can get worse, can't they? And I'd like to just expand the conversation and talk about, you know, if anybody's listening to this, that, that, that recognizes those symptoms in themselves that that you've gone through, um, what your advice and guidance is to them? Because I think this is almost like a public awareness broadcast now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, 100%. And it's one of the reasons that I speak very openly about my journey you know I wrote a book about it and the draft copy I gave to my now wife and my parents and my sister and said there's stuff in here that you don't know Mm. there's stuff in here that no one knows and I, I put that in a book and it's published it's out there and I know that I'm you know I'm 38 right now you know I'm a white guy I have lived this very full life I've bounced around the world and all these you know great stuff and I know that I have this opportunity to show that anyone can battle with their mental health and no matter no matter if you on the outside look like you're living this this big life and nothing can phase you and you're invincible right that I'm just like everyone else yeah as the old saying goes I put my trousers on one leg at a time just like everyone else (laughs) and I, I have the battles and my biggest piece of advice is always this is There's two ways you can speak up about your mental health if you really feel like you're struggling and that's like, that is what you need to do. If you're suffering in silence, I did it for so long, for years before I got help. And I thought to myself, right, I could go and talk to my friends and my family about it, but I was ashamed and I didn't want to talk to them about it because of that. And also I didn't want to be a burden to my friends and family. So I thought there's no way in hell that I can talk to them. It just can't happen. So the alternative alternative is go and talk to a stranger. And what I mean by a stranger is a counsellor, you know, a psychotherapist, a psychologist, a, psych- a psychiatrist, a professional. Because the way that I viewed that was, I can tell them as little or as much as I wanted. But I was still taking action and I was like, I'm just going to see if they're going to be able to help me. So the options you have to actually start the journey of of getting better and helping yourself is if you think there's no way I could talk to a stranger, then talk to a loved one. And I promise you, you won't be a burden. Okay. And if you're ashamed, I promise you, no one will judge you. But then if you think there's no way in hell that I can talk to a loved one or a family member, go and talk to a stranger. Even if it's 30 minutes every month, that's all you can afford or or find a helpline to talk to as well that's safe free. Speaking up and starting to talk about how you're feeling, that's just not to yourself or not in a diary or or, or not in your own head, but actually with someone else in the room is the best first step of getting you to... The other side of this dark time, and that is the advice that I have been giving ever since. That uh, I've been speaking up about my um, battles.
0: Uh, yeah, thank you, Luke. I, I really appreciate your openness and honesty, and, and that guidance there. I, if if this if there's one person listening, it touches and that that's that's reaches out for help, then that's been a good job we've done, hasn't it? Hundred uh, percent. So let's t- let's talk about your physical breakdown then. So you said your body shut down. You went from being um, this extreme endurance athlete to being a, a couch man.
1: Well, yeah, like I, I finished the ultimate triathlon. I was still battling with my mental health throughout that. My, my team, my small crew, uh, they knew I was, I was battling with depression, and they knew I had a bunch of stuff going on in life, and. they also knew how much hard work i'd got to to get to this start line and it was almost like just managing um me day to day and managing myself and so we finished the ultimate triathlon we covered two thousand kilometers in 12 days um swimming cycling and running and and you can watch the documentary on amazon prime and and then i finished and i had this overwhelming disappointment because of the way that i did it and I, i won't spoil it for everyone and and as I was still in my own head, I was still battling mentally about a few things and I was still, uh, you know, trying to figure stuff out in my own life and I, ca- I had some injuries at the end of it and I came back to London from, from Nice where we had a, a couple of days after the event and I thought I was okay. You know, I started to to do daily stuff, and I started to you know go for a little twenty minute jog here and a little half an hour bike bike ride there once my um, my injuries healed up, and and then all of a sudden I just felt like someone pulled a plug out of like the vacuum cleaner, so to speak, and it wasn't all case of like I'm just tired. It was no, I'm exhausted, and I'm sleeping sixteen hours a day, and I'm lost a lot of weight and I just feel really drained, you know, and I know my body because I've done enough experiments on it. I know the science behind it, I know the physiology and all these things, and I just thought there's something not right. So I started to do some work with Dr. Tamsin Lewis, ex-professional triathlete, who, you know, thought this would be right down her her alley, and we did a big battery of tests and and all of that, and I was still going to therapy at the same time as well. So I just want to tell people that, you know, this was an ongoing thing. I did therapy for Several years on and off. And then working with Tamsin, you came back with a bunch of different sort of tests. And, and one of the things she said was, Well, I've never seen this before. And that's <laughs> never a good thing from a doctor. And
0: yeah, there's, <laughs> what, it wasn't a bad winner. Typical yeah. triathlete pumping the
1: air. Um, my DHEA, which is a human growth hormone, which is a precursor to testosterone was basically zero. Mm. And, um, my cortisol was really high, which you took that as a good thing because although it's, it's bad, but what can be really bad is when your cortisol is always really low. So you're not actually producing enough, even though it was super, super high, she said any higher and it would just drop to be like really low. So there was DHEA, there was cortisol, there was a couple other things that were, um, just completely out of whack so we had to go on this massive big uh, supplement protocol a lot of natural stuff Tamsin's into that and and you know, as, as am I and it really helped um, and it was basically six months of this supplement protocol and did hyperbaric chamber recovery stuff as well and also for all these I kept having these headaches for I'd wake up and then till about Mid afternoon, I'd had these headaches. I had to go see a neurologist. And the easiest way to explain it, he said, like, if your light bulb is flickering and you just turn it a little bit and it comes on,
0: mm.
1: there was a little section of my brain where the electric signals were just sort of flickering and not getting through. And that was causing my headaches for like five, six hours after I woke up. So I had to have some medication for about three months to fix that. So I was on some sort of medication for about six months you know, during 2016. And it was just a case of, you know, to walk to the shops is about a half a mile from my house. And I struggled to do that. I would get to the shops, have to sit down for half an hour. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, six months ago, I'm running a double marathon. I'm cycling, you know, 370 kilometers in one day along the south of Spain. So it's a case of like, wow, like that's mentally draining but also i knew that i had no other option
0: if i can describe something i observe as a triathlon coach a lot of people that take on um long distance triathlons iron man and more extreme the double and then they go oh yeah i've done that now i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that um they're already busy people they've got a lot in their lives it's almost like i know i've got a few spaces here so i'm going to fill it with some triathlon training because you know you can sleep when you're dead unfortunately if you Take that attitude, you may end up dead before if you're not getting enough sleep. So it's a sort of, uh, it's a little bit of an oxymoron. But um, you do one race, you come across, maybe you experience that disappointment or that emptiness, you know, something that's occupied your life for a bit. And then now there's nothing. So you, you know, and, we, and we've all been there, including me, you get on the internet straight away and you look for the next challenge and you bounce from one thing to another. And of course, we think that because we're training, we're healthy, right? because you have to be healthy to finish these events. Um, we perhaps aren't eating as well because we're consuming all these sugary sports drinks that we discussed earlier and this high-carb diet that the magazines and the sports nutrition companies have told us, so that that's stuff that's happening inside. Um, we perhaps got other things that are going on in our life which are pushing us towards these endurance events as a way of creating an identity or some sort of, uh, some sort of persona. Um, and we just keep bouncing on without thinking about what's happening. And and certainly if your performances deteriorate, then obviously, you know, the the standard thing to do is just train a bit harder, do a bit more, isn't it? Because that's the way you're going to get better. Um, And I have seen many, many endurance athletes get to that point where it looks like or it feels like the pin has been pulled and they're deflated and they don't just come, they don't just, you know, have a slow descent. It's like from hundred miles an hour to a dead stop in the space of a few weeks. And that's just as frustrating. And I and I do I do worry about you know the, the fact now that a lot so many of these long distance events are the first thing that people do. And it's seen as the ultimate. It's like a standard distance triathlon's just to, just a to warm-up. I've got to do this thing too for, for some sort of human validation. And yet they're already, they've already got lives full. And that's what worries me is how that's going to affect their health mental health physical health relationships and everything else in the long term
1: yeah 100% and the analogy that i give like i i coach a lot of runners and adventure athletes as well and, and i do a lot of corporate speaking and one of the big things that i talk about is a lot of people not not logically but a lot of people think they have these different energy reservoirs in their body right so they've got mm. this reservoir for training when I train, I use that energy. When I go to work, I use this energy. When I'm at home with my family or my spouse or with my, you know, hanging out or partying with my friends, I use this energy. So as long as I'm not overdoing it in in, in any of these sort of one avenues, then I'm gonna be like, okay. That's not how the body works. And no. you know, life life stress is is a real thing. It'll make you tired right? So the way that I the, explain it to people with my athletes and also with my with my corporate clients is you've got a bucket with like taps on the bottom, <laughs> right? And the bucket will fill up with good food, rest, recovery, all these things that we know that are healthy for us, right? But the taps are always on. We can't completely turn those taps off, but we <laughs> can make them um, sort of we can turn them down so that only the water trickles out rather than flooding out. You do an Ironman and you're out there racing to do a personal best, that physical energy tap, it's turned on 100%, mm. right? So then after the end of the race, you can turn that off. And then if you go away on holidays and have a, a couple of weeks to chill, then the other taps that to do with relationships, um, work, just general stress, you know, your nutrition, they're really low as well and you're replenishing that bucket. But all the every day of our life, no matter what you're doing, there's always these taps on. So it's not about trying to turn them off, but you've got to acknowledge that that bucket is going to get drained. Mm. Now, we've seen it in people, we've seen it in corporate life, we've seen it in athletes, that that bucket will be empty. And I'm not saying that no one can sort of function with this empty bucket. But then what happens when there's an empty bucket in the sun, it gets brittle. And then all of a sudden at time, it just shatters. And then that's when people have breakdowns. That's when like myself basically has to do nothing for 18 months because my bucket was completely empty and it was dry and it just shattered. So we've got to remember that we only have one energy source in our body we can't sort of go oh well, we're just going to use this bit for that and this bit for that over there is it comes from one source so if you are having a stressful time at work then that's going to overlap in your available energy to train if you've had a big training session and then you've just had an argument with your spouse mm. and then you've got to go and you know try and concentrate at some at your work your concentration is going to be not as sharp because you're going to be exhausted mentally because you've done all this stuff and when people sort of understand this and then eventually they accept it, which is a tough part, they start to realize that, okay, I can do these big things, but I have to take longer to prepare for them and longer to recover as long as I can create more space in my daily life to do the little bits every day.
0: So I know you've got uh, something to be getting off to in a few minutes, Luke. Um, I, I, that, Energy bucket analogy is something that we use as British Triathlon tutors. In fact, one of my uh, one of my colleagues who does a lot of actually does a lot of counselling with people um, similar to in similar mental states that you were discussing earlier. Um, does a lot of corporate work. He he has that same um, that same analogy. So you went through extreme endurance. You, you went through the highs. You've gone through the complete lows mentally and physically. Where are you at now? What does your day look like? What sort of habits and rituals do you have that keep you on track? What's your nutrition looking like? And have you reached a point where balance and a holistic outlook is more important to you? Yeah, I'm in a really great place
1: in life at the moment. Um, and it always it goes up and down. But I, I don't like to use the word balance because I don't think there ever is a balance. It's a case mm-hmm.
0: of I'm dedicating more time to do this than we might just. We might disagree on that in a minute, but I'll I'll explain why.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, so my my days evolve now. I normally get up and go for a walk in the morning, whether it's five minutes or or 10 minutes. Um, I normally just try and do a, a quick block, um, walk around the block just to get me going. Um, do a bit of breathing, uh, sort of some deep, some deep breathing. Do I do it every day? No. Do I do it most days? Yes. I'm not sort of one of these people that's like, my morning routine is this and that's it. Um, but I try and do it most mornings. Um, I normally try and train in the morning. I'm still doing big challenges, but um, you know I create more space in my daily life to make sure that I have enough time to to train and recover and I don't try and fill it up. So over the course of a, a day or a week, I do a lot less now from every th- perspective than I did, say, sort of four or five years ago. Um, so depending on what my, my session is playing for the day, I normally will train. And then I can have coaching calls with athletes or clients. I can have podcasts. I can have meetings. I can I can do the over like, the last eighteen months. It's like virtual talks, um, hosting events. Um, actually, been hosting a few of the triathlons out at Eaton Dorney over the last uh, month. Um, I saw a bunch of your SWAT crew out there. I was giving them shout-outs. Mm. So doing some commentating there uh, at different races and stuff like that, and. Um, nutrition it's it's all real food that's the simplest way i i eat carbohydrates i eat fat i eat protein i eat a bit of everything i know what sort of works with the type of training that i'm doing um the high intensity stuff yeah my my day might might have a few more carbohydrates in it or, or the meal the, for dinner the night before i have a few more but same as you like sweet potatoes and and stuff like that um but yeah it's real food like people get confused when you say that they that you eat real food it's just like i don't really eat much processed stuff i'm supported by a sports nutrition company that's real food 33 fuel give them a small little plug um and uh yeah so when i when i use sports nutrition it's it's all real food stuff that they've been made so but at the same time as i make a lot of my own stuff because i i know that there's very few times that i'm working at high intensity when i do i i use sort of more of the 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 sugary sort of high carbohydrate stuff but at the same time as I know a lot of my sessions aren't super intense so I can get away with you know my go-to is almonds there's a bit of carbohydrate there's a lot of fat there's a bit of protein in them and and I can eat them and so they're sort of my go-to nutrition um and my evening sort of routine to sort of top and tail it is I I shut down at about 6 30 7 o'clock um, or probably that's a lie, probably six, six thirty, because I have dinner between normally anytime from six thirty till till seven um with my wife. And and uh and then after dinner is summertime, we'll go for a walk or we'll just chill out, um, read a book, work, or we'll do sort of work not on a computer, but on a pen and paper, write some journaling or or, or play around with a few ideas. And I'm I'm normally in bed anywhere between 8 30 and nine o'clock reading. Um, I, I don't go to sleep at 8.30, but it's, it's just a case of it's my evening routine to get me ready for bed. I'll go in, I'll close the blinds and I'll close the curtains, um, turn on my Lumi light and uh, yeah, I will read for half an hour, 45 minutes, or if I've had a big training couple of days or a session and my eyes keep closing after three or four lines, I'll go to sleep. But that's mm. sort of where I'm looking at right now and how my how my days are structured and yeah, smiling
0: every day. Sounds like a high performance human lifestyle you've carved out, Luke. Um, Exactly what we're uh, asking and suggesting that uh, people need to consider is having balance, having a balance of um, high intensity work and training, but some really low intensity stuff, some walking, just being at one with nature, getting out into the woods. Um, I'm a big fan of reading uh, myself, uh, having that pre-sleep routine to make sure you get good sleep because that's, that's the best time to recharge those batteries, isn't it? And you talked about your DHEA and the human growth hormone. If you want if you want the human growth hormone that's going to help you recover from all the stuff, that's 95% of that's produced during deep sleep. So uh, you've got to get into that. Per your point on balance, I think that if you stand on a tightrope, you can probably be balanced for a few seconds, but you fall out of balance really quickly. And, and to me, balance is something you can achieve. It's like a sweet spot, but I think um, – you can quickly get out of that balance and it's about being mindful enough to know how did you get there and what have I done to lose it and how am I going to get back? But I agree, it's it's very rare that you're completely balanced for a long period of time. To use that
1: analogy of walking a tightrope and why I, I don't agree that there is ever complete balance is if you are in a complete balance point on that tightrope where you, nothing is moving and you're completely still, mm. well, you're not moving forward. You're, you're still so you can stay in that place but you're not moving forward or back so there's no progression so do you want to be balanced where you're not actually going anywhere so i like i know what you mean and I, and i the overarching reason why why you say and you have that philosophy is i agree with i agree with what you were saying um but at the same time as like yeah like I feel one of the things that I always talk about is don't make sacrifices, make choices. Mm-hmm. So if you have, let's say you want to qualify for Kona and you have a big race coming up, okay, for so maybe six months prior, you've got to take a lot off your plate because for those six months you're going to be more focused on your training. So take, you know, um, your um, your uh, personal life, like meeting friends and stuff, off the table. You just got to train, eat, recover on the weekends. That's it. Do your job. You know, say no to a lot of stuff is going on. So, like, you look from the outside in, that's not balanced because you're not really having a social life. But it's for six months because your goal and your big thing is I want to qualify for Kona, so I need to do this big race. So, but make a choice. Don't say, "Oh, I'm sacrificing seeing my friends because I want to achieve this." Like, that's completely wrong mindset, in my opinion, to have. Is make choices and not sacrifices, and know that if you spend more time on one thing, then you've got to. Um, move something in your life so you can create space so you can do that well so you're not going to be um you know emptying your bucket too much
0: well i you know that's a good point to finish on luke is it's about understanding that the total energy we need in that bucket and how we're going to apportion it you know it's it's no different to working out how you're going to spend your your daily financial budget if you've got 100 pounds you can only spend 100 pounds so if you want to buy a new if you want to buy a new so if you want to go out for an expensive meal, it's going to cost you £50. You're going to have to cut back on something else in order to be able to manage that. If you keep taking a loan and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, eventually you're going to end up seriously in debt. And that's when trouble c- comes. And, and that sounds like where you were. You borrowed and borrowed and borrowed and then you're in debt and everything comes to a stop, doesn't it? Until you've repaid the debt. Oh uh, yeah, I I emptied the the bank's vault. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, listen Luke, it's been fabulous to catch up again. I really appreciate your openness and honesty. Um you've mentioned your book. I think that's um called Chasing Extreme, is that right? So we'll point people to that. We've got The Ultimate Triathlon which you've said is uh, available on Amazon Prime. I um I, I do suggest that everybody goes and takes a look at that and get a, an insight into what Luke was doing. And there, there's some other stuff that I've heard Luke talk about and read about that's crazy in that in that race. The uh, the lost 45 miles is uh, is an interesting one. Um, we'll leave it on. We'll leave it there. Anything else you've got, Luke? Social media channels. We'll point people at all of those. And uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's good to catch up with you, Simon. An absolute pleasure to uh, have me on the podcast great thanks again luke and thank you once again listeners for joining us thank you to luke for joining me on the high performance human podcast today i really appreciated his openness and honesty when speaking about mental health and depression if you've suffered similar experiences please do make sure you find someone to speak with we have some links for this in the show notes below along with everything else we chatted about in today's show Now, if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the High Performance Human podcast on iTunes and get new episodes each week as they become available. Oh, and while you're there, please don't forget to leave a rating and review. Right, that's all for this week. We'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and please stay focused on that goal of being a high performance human in every aspect of your life.